<laughs> what's happening everybody thanks for tuning in to revolutionary lump and radio what we're doing is we're just going to re-up an old episode one of the earlier ones where my editing was absolutely abysmal but it's one of my favorite episodes ever and we're going to revisit the nwa and lump and rap culture it just absolutely fascinates me how capital will take culture from the masses and also sell it back to them and also set culture as well there's also a good chance that you're going to see a collaboration with a comrade where we go over these kind of subjects once again. Without further ado, here is our watching and reviewing of The Defiant Ones, a history of commercial rap culture and gang culture. Jimmy begins a new career as co-founder of Interscope Records, cutting a deal with Death Row Records for Interscope to become the label's distributor. Dre, Snoop Dogg and Tupac Shakur become embroiled in a violent feud with East Coast rap rivals. This defiant documentary is like, it's sick. This documentary is in itself an advert for like all the products included in the film, which I think is like a general theme for like Netflix. It's great for like product placement films, but like I couldn't help but watch this defiant ones and make a connection to the huge impact that the people included in it and the industries within it had on mine and other people's lives. Like how I'd grown up and like how I'd seen posters on people's walls. Always hear like rappers and all that from obviously other people around me and you know their music being played. And I think that like if you think about it, it's always like gangster or like wannabe thug or whatever kind of circles as well. Obviously their message was similar to like what was happening on the streets in Lumpen communities. But I think mass music media culture is like a crazy phenomenon because even as you grow up, like you tend to find people being in different groups uh, with like the the scallies and all that in one circle and you've even got like not to offend nobody or not like but it, you've got like the guts and you had like the emos and like them kind of different groups and obviously you've got like what hips there's no like people different groups fit into different music tastes as well i mean i don't know whether it's an acquired taste or like marketed taste but that's hopefully what <laughs> i think this documentary is good at is it shows you exactly how it is all of this is basically like as i'm saying orchestrated marketing to sell people their own like worst experiences in like this gangster rap like music that we're going to be listening to and all that kind of rap music and all that like like beef that they marketed and all that is like it sells these people in Lumpen communities, I think, like their own worst experiences back at them in like a degraded capitalist realist exploitation and like colonization of culture that this causes and the contradictions are revealed in this documentary that will help like explain what I mean and like I'm happy that you could help explore this music industry and its effect on people, proletarians with your own wisdom to bring out what I guess comes down to is like a diagnosis of what's life like, like who are we and like who have they created these different subcultures through music. (laughs) What do you make of that little intro? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've not actually seen this yet, but I'm, you know, tangentially aware of the story. Like, I know who Jimmy Iovine is, I know who Winterscope Records is, etc., etc. I'm aware of, you know, Snoop Dogg and the story and Dre and MWA and all that jazz. Uh, but I've actually not seen this yet, so I'm sure that I'll learn some things and I'll have some questions and comments and all that jazz as we go through this. And uh, just hopefully I'll be able to add something to it, you know? Alright, excellent. So with that said, let's go ahead and hop into this. This is The Divine Ones, Episode 3. Jimmy Iovini. That's how you say his name when it is in it. Jimmy is a tabloid. That's why they can't really fuck with him like they really want to, you know what I'm saying? Overplay the fettuccine. My mother was very intense. She felt that everyone was taking advantage of him. She was always looking at the angle that someone might have. And Jimmy picked up that. She loved me, but she worried a lot. Not just made me twitch, literally. <laughs> In my neighborhood, either you could punch good, duck good, or have a great sense of humor. And I was the latter. I was nowhere near a tough guy, but there were sure a lot of tough guys around. Everyone in the neighborhood did what it took to earn a few extra bucks. As a longshoreman, my dad used to tell me there were extra things lying around the pier. He'd bring home 12 catcher's mitts. I said, what am I gonna do with 12 guys? My uncle would bring things home. My next door neighbor would bring things home. And they would trade them. And that was the culture. So you're dealing with Italian short man complex from Brooklyn. You're dealing with a lot of energy. And you took that into record business. Jimmy's one of those guys that if you think you killed him, you better go back and shoot him again because he'll get up. <laughs> it's opera. Italians love the opera. Big emotions, violence, that energy, that rage. He has it. He just doesn't come off as angry. But under the skin of it, he likes blood and bones. Flip and L, do you think that they'll ever do an intro to you like that one one day? <laughs> what? <laughs> I doubt it. I don't think anyone could say I'm all for blood and bones, to be honest. <laughs> Plus, there's no way I'd have any kind of impact as much as Jimmy Iovine would ever have on something like the record industry, you know? Fully hyped him up there, but it was interesting while we're talking is how, you know, we see like things go missing on the docks and that, and, and like we can relate to that in Liverpool. It was a, a life where even then people had to struggle to get by, and um, he seemed like a kind of sympathetic to like the hustlers and that just by where he was born. So I think that that's going to prove it interesting with when he meets like, um, you know, gangsters and that in the future. Yeah, of course, sure. It's just like a way of life, you know? Like, if you can't, you know, make a living working at some job, and that's just the way it is, you know what I mean? Like, people aren't going to not commit crime if they can't survive. Like, there's no way around it. Like, except, you know, completely reorganizing the economic system so that people don't have to do that to survive, but, you know. Very good point. We was just happy to be out of the hood working with Dr. Dre. I was on house arrest. This was one of the baddest motherfuckers ever do it. His ear is different. You can't really say, why did he pick me? Out of all of the rappers that was rapping in the 80s and say, well, I'm going to put you down with me. I don't know why, but he always put me up. Hey, Snoop Doggy Dog, welcome to your TV rap. What's up, man? Snoop was a street guy, but he was the personality I had not seen in rap. It was a whole other flow. 
My thing back then was freestyle. Like, I didn't know how to write. But DOC was my teacher. He was the one who showed me through this and like this, that, and this, and up. He gave me that line, you know what I'm saying? And then there was some white boys, and they had a truck, and my father had some sort of device mechanism. He was like, this is, dude, this is the hydroponic. It's hydroponic, man. Man, we just smoking, and niggas getting fucked up. I'm becoming a hippie, I'm becoming a stoner. By the end of the night, niggas was like, nigga, that hydroponic, nigga. Nigga, that hydrochronic is the shit. We fucked around and fucked the whole name up. <laughs> yeah, he like, nigga, your shit is bomb, nigga. Your album should be called The Chronic, nigga. And I was wearing that white hat with the green leaf on it. It's like everything was coming together like magic. <laughs> so, first of all, Snoop Dogg couldn't even really write properly. Somebody had to, like, show him how it was done. And then, like... Whilst getting explained how to write, that becomes a track which he makes millions and millions of dollars from and all that to this day. Also, hydroponic weed come out and that's like where you grow in like 10 conditions, like you can grow it like in the house like quite easy or like not a house like anywhere basically, any building indoors. He ended up like getting confused and calling that hydrochronic and then they've done an album obviously called The Chronic and then since then like weeds have come out called like The Chronic and all of that but that's just poetry I think <laughs> because they create this phenomenon under the impressions of something that it's not you know what I'm saying it's hydroponic and they're saying hydrochronic but it stays as hydrochronic and it's just like that that just exists for no other reason other than like some mad bourgeois moments that trickles down through fucking culture somehow. Obviously making use of everybody's like love for weed at the time. They love weed at the time so that's why it sticks on and that gives them momentum in that like culture and again I guess that that's why that in music is interesting to uh, like lumping or the so-called urban communities and that because they love weed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ultimately only crime that made it that way, right? Because before those things were seen as legitimate medicines, like you could go to a doctor and they would literally prescribe Right? So it's only like criminalization that pushed it underground and made it, you know, popular or semi-popular yeah. with like, you know, uh, the proles and lumpen proles, right? Because if it, if, it, if it wasn't made illegal and it wasn't pushed underground, then the underground communities wouldn't have to live off of it, which means they wouldn't be smoking it, which means it wouldn't just be... Yeah, it's popular generally, right? It would be as popular, but there wouldn't be as much use because I think people would use it in different ways and it wouldn't be like for escapism. Yeah, probably, yeah. But I mean, yeah. if, you, if it's like one of the only ways you can make money, then like suddenly it's super popular, right? Like, because yeah. you have to, it's not about like wanting to, it's about like, now I have yeah. to, you know what I mean? You know, uh, never get high on your own supply, though. <laughs> In 1989, I wanted to stop producing records. Well, I didn't want to be out all night producing records and not see my kids. 
So I went to a couple of friends. I went to David Geffen, seek their advice, you know. Geffen, Geffen, Geffen. Let me get you to understand this properly. You don't have to say Madonna's last name. You don't have to say Cher's last name. You don't have to say Bono's last name. You don't have to say David's last name. Got it? Jimmy used to sit on his knee and learn from David. My first impressions of Jimmy were that he was a sponge, that he picked up everything he heard or saw. David had a record company and it was really successful and I always admired David. So I said, wow, man, maybe I could start a record company. He wanted to make a lot of money. And uh, record producers don't make that much money. People talk about Just those how things. creepy did those bourgeois gatherings look? Yeah, this is what I was actually, actually going to stop and comment on this, right? So here's the thing. You're literally looking at a group of people who make their money through social connections, right? It's, it's less about, you know, hard work, nose to the grindstone, etc., etc. It's about who you know, right? So Jimmy Iovine just happened to know this dude who I've never heard of before. You know, I'm sure he's like a mega typhoon in the game. Geffen Records, never heard of him. But he learned from him, took him in, and brought him to where he was, right? So it's about the social interactions that capital enables you to have. It's not so much about nose to the grindstone. Now, that doesn't mean that you can have, you know, not work at all, but it means that those social connections are way more important. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it's not like he happened to meet him or somebody's like these bourgeois are sitting collectively together thinking who can we bring into the circle next and then have a meeting in this big tall building like saying yeah you're gonna be in a group soon or a social circle but what it is is literally just like parties that's what that's what it is it's just people are just at these parties and the parties are, are yet like friends of friends or if you've got monopolies the people at these parties which are the physical beings behind the mega corporation typhoons and that that you said these are just real people so they're just at these parties they just bump into them and then they like they said jimmy ivy sits on the shoulder of somebody who was wanting to come on that level and yet they just talk to each other and like i bring this out so much because that's how they justify it in their mind is they don't see the class element they just see themselves at parties when there's no underlying base superstructure even you know there's no forces there to make them do that they think they've done it completely independently and that is so important because class consciousness how you break through that yeah of course for sure because you know those social interactions are ultimately you know class divided right like there's no way that you or i would ever be in that party room right so even you know social functions and social gatherings they obviously have you know lists and you've got to be on the list to get in and if you're not you're getting bounced out you know they're not just letting anyone into those things so you have to be of a certain class to even get in that room yeah david taught me the art of business in music and i was going in not knowing anything about business and because David sold Geffen Records, everybody wanted to get in the label business. 
And it was incredible competition. So then there was a guy named Ted Field who is starting a record company, and we really hit it off. Ted Field was the renegade of the very wealthy Marshall Fields family. He didn't want to take over any of the family businesses, and he had a passion for entertainment. So we decided to do this together, and I brought along Doug Morris from Atlanta. I said, Jimmy, you want to start the label, you know. I'm in for half if you want it. I was always in for half. And that's how Interscope came about. And naturally, because Atlantic's our partner, they brought along Time Warner, because Time Warner owns Atlantic. You get a guy you know is going to get hits, you make him the boss. He's going to bring in the music. And the other people who do the other stuff, they do the other stuff. Everyone thinks that I'm going to come in and do rock and roll, and because I came from U2 and Tom Petty and Springsteen and all this stuff. But I came in and wanted a hit. So I came back from lunch one day with Ted, and all of the secretaries are looking at this video, and it was in Spanish. They said, oh, we love this guy. He's so beautiful. And they're all singing this Rico Suave. Rico. Suave. Hey, man, fuck it. We're going to sign this. What? This is going to be our first signing? Rico. Is this what we're going to be known for as a record company? Because I don't care, we're just signing. I said, well, if we're going to sign this, I'm going to go find something that is so out there that people won't know what the heck we're doing. So I hit the road and I end up finding a group called Primus. The odd part was Primus liked odd things in the world. And one of the reasons I signed with them was because they thought it was the coolest thing that we had a company that had Rico Suave. Rico. Go figure. I didn't know Gerardo would be a hit, but it was. Huge hit. Put us on the map. Suave. So next thing you know, it felt like everyone wanted to be with Interscope. It was a complete free-for-all. Primus, Helmet, Four Non-Blondes. Tupac was signed by Tom Wiley. And then Mark Wahlberg, who was known as Marky Mark, with his brother Donnie. And, no doubt. The first time I met Jimmy was at a showcase, probably 91. I had no idea what Interscope Records was. I didn't know who Jimmy Iovine was. It was just them there and us playing, and there was no audience. And we knew that these were like guys that could help us make a record. But I was super naive. I didn't know anything about getting signed. I just sang and wrote songs and made clothes. But I remember Jimmy came up to me and kind of pulled me aside and he said to me, you're going to be a star in six years. And I was like, okay, first of all, I'm going to have like 10 kids by the time six years comes around and I won't be doing this still. And um, who are you? And 
why six years? That's a weird number, you know, but he was right. I hadn't gone through what I needed to go through to write the record that was gonna actually make a difference and touch people, you know? And so he bought us an eight track recorder. We built a studio in our garage and we went in there and we learned how to write music. But we'd write like a few songs and be like, okay, let's go play it for Jimmy. And it would always be like a bit of a like, <sighs> write another song, write another song, write another song. It's a frustrating relationship because when you're an artist, you think you're done, and in his mind, you're never done. We had very few releases in 91, and Jimmy was a renowned producer, very creative, but he wasn't renowned as a businessman. So, you know, I didn't feel comfortable around executives. I felt comfortable around artists and record producers because they know how to get the best out of artists. And then I found my niche. I said, okay, I gotta find great producers and I produced them. Why are you doing this to me? Am I not living up to what I'm supposed to be? Our first real adventure was getting Nine Inch Nails. I think you owe me a great big apology. 1991 was when Jimmy first got a sniff of Nine Inch Nails. Oh shit, this guy's incredible. Every day, conversations about we gotta get Nine Inch Nails. But it wasn't just a band on the free market that everybody was trying to sign. They were signed to a label, and they fucking hated that label. TVT was just a collection of shit. And the guy who ran that label wasn't gonna make anybody's lives easy. Trent and I begin to have a little bit of uh, 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 difficult. He had him signed for seven albums, and everybody in the business knew they wanted off the label. This is what, personally, I'm looking for. That next guy that can write these lyrics and have this attitude. And he had the stage presence, he produced those records himself, he had every ounce of it. The thing, I mean, the thing that was so frustrating to me at that time was my whole life I knew I wanted to be on stage doing this. And I remember it was the slow build where each little moment you could savor, like hearing my song on college radio, first time. Holy shit! You know, it was like the greatest thing in the world. I'd finally, through a combination of hard work and luck, cracked the door open, signed to TVT. And I recorded a collection of songs that we felt proud of. Turned it into Gottlieb, and he said, well, this record is an abortion. And that's a blow coming when you've never made a record before. He's put records out, maybe he knows more than I do. And he said, you fucked up what could have been a good career. But that was the album, and we put it out, and we just toured. And as each small tier of success started happening, the record started to sell. And I thought that would result in Gottlieb saying, hey, you did know what you're doing. But instead, it was, if you sold a million copies of this album, well, we need to sell four million on the next one. Um, I didn't see it that way. And he knew he wasn't going to get out of the way. Trent would not be the first artist who, who thought, gee, now I'm having a taste of success. Wouldn't it be nice to 
be off an independent label and on a big label. Pretty much every major label were all willing to fund a lawsuit to help them get out of their contracts because they think Dinosaur Nails is that great. This is the first time I saw Jimmy thinking like kind of three-dimensional. He said, we won't win if we go down the lawsuit route. Everyone else is going to do that, so we got to do something different. The only way to really facilitate this is somebody goes and convinces the label to take on a partner. I said, well, how are we going to do that? The phone. That is his theater of war. That's where he is deadly. He started to speak to Steve Gottlieb every day for one year straight. He lived in the bathroom for a year on the phone. Every morning at six o'clock, I'd call everybody involved. And he'd sit on this director's chair, feet up like this. At the same time signing Nine Inch Nails, at the same time working TVT, treating both of them in a way that he could see the resolution. They couldn't see it. Steve, Trent's manager. And he used anger, charm, guile, deviousness. He had a red hot focus. It was nuclear. I'm just gonna sit in here. I can outlast anybody. He did not come out of that bathroom for one year. The kids, I just kept saying, you no, know, daddy's living in the bathroom. It was painful. Jimmy wouldn't give up. And when Steve realized that he was not going to win this battle, he agreed to sign over the contract to Interscope. If anybody knows Steve Gottlieb, just getting him to that point was something that only Jimmy could do. So just to follow along with the story, what's happened is Jimmy Iveen's basically figured out that from this Rico Suarez or whatever it was, this other band and just a few eccentric other bands, he can actually sell them. So he's went down that route with like eccentric bands and then he's caught his eye with Nine Inch Nails, which they're not really as eccentric as the other bands which he signed. But they're actually a very good artist and um, his next task was to produce producers uh, rather than artists. So we go for Nine Inch Nails and that's just basically to catch up on where we're on the story. But just to comment on what we've seen, Jordan, uh, was just casually record label put managers just casually talking about other artists lives and telling them that the music shit uh, just showed you can keep making music and not go off to other labels and yeah it's just just uh, just how they did business but yeah yeah definitely right it just shows the importance of interpersonal connections again like interpersonal relationships the idea that like all these people know each other they're only a phone call away because you know, when anyone else thinks of like Warner or any of those huge record labels, you just think of them as sort of giant, monopolistic, faceless entities that you can never, you can't get in contact with, you can't change them, you can't influence them in any way. However, if you're Jimmy Iovine, then to, to you, um, it, it was what, TNTMT, whatever, mm. in this instance, isn't this huge faceless corporation. Yeah. It's just, oh, I know that dude, let me just phone him <laughs> and I can just deal with this like this isn't an issue at all because he knows the guy yeah perfectly brought out awesome I can't wait to see analysis of the future because it goes even crazier let me tell you when they start bringing out all these uh, rappers <laughs> I think his his ability to take the other person's point of view and to understand it and appreciate it and put himself in those shoes. That also informs 
why he's so good as a as a marketer. Um, you know, in terms of his being able to understand people and really think about, you know, their primal motivations, their desires, and really try and and have this kind of uh, Vulcan mind meld of what is going to uh, move them. So after all that, I still hadn't met Trent in person. By that time, he was completely allergic to record company executives. I was in a hotel room, and I purposely turned the lights down, and I just thought, I'm going to have to portray myself as not someone that you want to deal with. I went into this room, it's dark, and there's candles. I mean, it was like a meeting with Dracula. You know, he kind of said, what do you want? And I said, well, I'd like you to give me an advance for an album and then just leave me alone and I'll give you the album and I'll give you singles and I'll give you the artwork but I don't want someone sitting in the studio. I have an idea, please don't ruin it as it's trying to come out of me. Okay, what else do you want? Um, well, I'd like to have a record label where I could sign other bands if I felt like that. Okay, what else do you want? I couldn't think of anything else, you know? So I said, by the way, here's Broken. You can put that out. They actually gave us Broken as a free additional record. It was amazing because after all we had been through with them, nobody really knew about it, but we were sort of scrambling for cash for a minute. Interscope wasn't doing great at that moment, and Jimmy had this mad, obsessed focus on the big picture. The 90s were really volatile times in America, and music was incredible. It really had something to say. And we wanted a record company in the spirit of Atlantic Records in 1970, when they had Ray Charles, Led Zeppelin, Aretha Franklin, the Rolling Stones. Those were the greatest artists of their time, both from the urban world and from the rock world. And that's what we were trying to do. So you can also just see the connection between the bass and the superstructure there, right? They just said that, you know, the 90s were tumultuous times, right? It was an unstable time. But they had great artists. So the economic base gave rise to the music in the superstructure that turned out to be great. So that's also an issue because people get nostalgic about it and they think, oh, the music was good, so I'd like to go back to that time. But the issue is the reason the music was so good there was because times were economically terrible back then. Yes, absolutely. What was also interesting was the fact that not to mention that Jimmy Iovine said that that's exactly what they were trying to do. It was also interesting that he mentioned, you know, different music groups, you know, including the Rolling Stones, who were like the kind of rock and roll of the time, and it was like lashing out in a way. And since then, you know, black people in America have been involved in music more, and I think they did take over rock and roll in, in some ways, in some aspects. Or at least similarly, in some instances, that's where, like, you know, who was the person who was trying to be this new bass and superstructure uh, within music to use it in that way? It was Jimmy Iovine. Yeah, but to go on to the fact that Jimmy Iovine actually said that this is exactly what they were trying to do just really shows what we're going into here. We're going to see... I guess in some aspects, is it a cultural revolution? But with music, 
portrayed in modern times. I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be like a cultural revolution for the good, right? It wouldn't be like a like a sort of cultural revolution in the proletarian Maoist sense, right? You're just looking at a change in the way that the music culture and the music industry is going to operate, and with that comes a new mode of culture that they're going to use to exploit and drive record sales. What do you mean by mode of culture? So, when you... So when they sign these new artists, those artists are ultimately going to form a culture, right? They're going to... So, like, if you sign Tupac, like, you know what's going to happen, the the type of people he's bringing in, the audiences, the shows, like, you know that there is a culture that goes along with that. um, And and that ultimately, it's... You're going to want to try and brand that because that's ultimately what you're selling. It's like, um... So, like, if you're signing some kind of, like, I don't know, like, Nine Inch Nails or something, you know that the people coming to your shows are going to be, like, you know, rockers, they're going to be metalheads, they're going to be those type of people, right? And that is the culture that those people operate in. So when you go to those shows, you're going to have, you know, like, mosh pits and those kinds of things. Like, that is the culture of those shows, right? You're not going to walk into, like, a Nine Inch Nails show and it be, like, like an opera crowd, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and of course there are reasons as to why they are a certain way. That's very much to do with these moguls in the music industry. Sure. Who, you know, are probably the ones that we've already listened to and um, definitely are going to be speaking to about in the future. I walked into Jimmy's office one day and he goes, Steve, you know what your problem is? And he drew a straight line. He goes, that's you. He goes, you know what we got to bring into your life? And he squiggles. We got to get some of that. began as a high-speed chase, according to the California Highway Patrol, and ended early Sunday morning with Rodney King being brutally beaten by Los Angeles police officers. During the making of The Chronic, L.A. was literally on fire. Niggas was coming in the studio with TVs and toasters and all kind of shit. It was like a fucking swap meet in the mic booth. Like, man, what the fuck are you guys doing? We trying to work on a fucking record. I personally was like, fuck that nigga, because I went out looting, stole all kind of shit, brought it all back to the studio. We even had DOC at, get your ass in the car, nigga, come on. A Los Angeles Times poll out today says that California inside a breakdown of moral values and a lack of economic opportunity as the two leading causes of the Los Angeles riots. Well, young rap musicians have some ideas of their own about what caused the deadly violence. Yeah, well, you know how dogs think that uh, dogs is mainly, you know, they cool as long as you don't fuck with them or irritate them. Once you irritate them, they react, you know, and that's how we are, you know? We, we cool and all, but, you know, once something pop, everybody... <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
So what you heard in the background was obviously somebody, you know, from the hood and that with the dog and he said the creel as long as you don't do nothing to them and that's how we are and then the dogs just like completely ran away without being held on by the lead. Yeah, the LA riots of course where comp to this there was people looting, rioting, social inequality that gives rise to these these looting, these opportunist behaviours by people who are trying to survive in the neighbourhoods and you know there was UK riots they're not quite the same when in, of course in America it's very or it's a lot more obviously white supremacist and it breaks me heart when these things happen without having actual class consciousness and purpose to bring all that energy in, in towards political goals and there's a lot you could do with that kind of energy and that kind of physical labor of human bodies getting together in a way that you want to protest and get back at the state that's oppressed us consistently since its inception but looting and rioting this is why we do these kind of things on revolutionary lumpen radio to show we we know what it is that's causing all this mayhem it's capitalism it's it is the social inequalities that make people want to lash out and loot and just really even if you don't understand why that is that's that's fundamentally why that is because <laughs> like you can't see on this documentary you should watch it but like the houses like jimmy Iveen's just talking and casually it's absolutely massive it's like probably about like what it's probably about 10 houses worth on my like street like just just the building alone we, we get it just and to to comment to the workers this is why you should support the lumping and that because i mean i don't see many workers doing no looting or rioting and that but i've seen it mostly in like black black communities because they're the most oppressed and the most fucking sick of this so it happened in toxic in liverpool again shout out to my comrades and, and scouses you know it's just sad that people risk everything that they do to take part in riots and all that. And this is why we need class analysis, class consciousness and solidarity with the lumping. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are definitely pros that participate in this, right? Like anyone that's living paycheck to paycheck, anyone that's like working multiple jobs and still isn't enough to live, um, they'll definitely participate in any riots, right? It was like the um, London riots, right? When was that? Like 2011, 2012, yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that, remember those? Yeah, tons of, you know, pros participated in those things. I mean, again, at the risk of repeating myself, this is just another example of how the economic base fuels the superstructure, right? So you've got a group of people that come from those areas, economically deprived. They're music artists and producers. They get in the studio. They've got TVs in there. They can see what's happening with the riots while they're recording. And they're like, no, I'm going to go grab some it. And what do you think their music's going to be because of that, right? It's going to involve that. It's going to talk about that, right? I mean, you can see this in NWA. Like, their songs like Fuck the Police, like, that happened because the police were in their neighborhoods, right? And they were fucking with them constantly. Like, if what's happening in your real life is going to come out in the music, ultimately, and that's how the bass manifests itself in the superstructure. I mean, obviously, they're from the streets and that, but were they, they like, drug-toting dogs? There were so many companies out there that turned death row down that didn't even want to be dealing with that coming off to the NWA situation. Nobody wanted to deal with this gangster rap thing. Some of the companies were saying they didn't want to deal with the situation that I was in as far as ruthless and the contracts and Easy e and Jerry Heller, they're trying to starve me out and get me to come back in on my hands and knees. 
that I started second guessing myself. Is it possible that what I think is good isn't good because everybody is telling me it's not working? And this was what they were calling trash. Cassettes and CDs of rap they say is offensive. 1992. There was tremendous hostility to the rap business. The police were very sensitive to what had happened in Los Angeles. And a guy named Bill Bennett with C. Dolores Tucker adopted this topic. That's what gangster rap is doing to our children, turning them into... One of the signs said, gangster rap is rape. So, the liberal hegemony is always going to do this, right? Like, there's always going to be a reactionary current to anything that's new or upcoming or just doesn't fit within the uh, established hegemonic order. So... They're ultimately going to reject it to start with because it's new. But I guarantee you the second that some company signs them and they start making money off of it, like it's going to become, you know, mainstream. And we all know that now just because of the time we're living in, right? Like we know that Dre and Cube and everything are, you know, as big as they are and they're super mainstream now. And that's just what it is. Like everything new is always rejected to start with. What you wasn't actually talking about was how the state blamed rap music and gangster rap music for the LA riots and how they portrayed on the media. They filmed somebody else going over all the tapes of gangster rap and that, or probably white racists going over all the music, which is, of course, I think cultural, artistic, like beauty. I, I admire artists and what they produce and think that they're, you know, an absolute treat to humanitarian, like, intellect and inspiration. But do you consider the fact that the news at that time would specifically film these tapes being run over and blaming gangster rap music. Do you think that there'd be an, an opportunity there to make a profit from the music industry? Because ultimately the gangster rap industry was in the same way into scope, like being just out there in a shock value that ultimately is productive to, to marketing gangster rap in the in a broader audience or do you think that they're just simply re reporting the news i mean the media landscape from now from back then is entirely different like back then there would have been sort of like genuine fear over those things and any association with uh, an artist like trey at that point would have been detrimental like it would have bought negative press and then people wouldn't have bought the records and it would have been genuinely problematic but like today the media landscape has changed such that anything that gets clicks is good. So they don't even care if you get clicks from doing something positive or negative. It's just like a click is a click. So it doesn't matter if you get one from doing something great or something awful. So it's probably easier for people to do fucked up shit now and make money off of it because anything that drives clicks, you can find somewhere, somewhere to fund it. Yeah, good take. I agree with that. Awesome. Let's go. Cool. The record companies were scared. Not because it wasn't making money. They were afraid to deal with the people. Yeah, let's see. So now they know. The people at these record industries, the people that run the labels, they're not from that. They're not from that life. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know anything about it, right? So they can look over that fence and see, all right, these people are making money and everything, but I don't want to deal with those people. I don't want to deal with that industry. I don't want to deal with that culture. I don't want to deal with those people, ultimately. Yeah, fine. They're making money and everything, but I just don't want to deal with it. Yeah, it's interesting as soon as you played the point that you made about it would actually have negative effects on the music sales was brought up because you mentioned instantly that record producers, of course, got scared because they weren't selling as many records because of that news exposure, I imagine. Mm -hmm. We 
come out of the rock and roll world, you know, so I wasn't really understanding hip hop, and I'm the first person to admit that. But I had a lot of respect for John McClain. And John came to me and said that he had this record by this producer that was extraordinary. It was a guy from NWA. I didn't know who Dr. Dre was, but just like Trent Reznor, there was three or four different lawsuits pending. There's a lot of complications, a lot of weird stuff. No one wanted to go near it. It was a mess. All I remember is that Dre and Shook came in to play us the chronic. I said, Dre, who? Who recorded this for you? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, who was the recording engineer? And he said, me. You produced it and you were the engineer? Yes. I said, wow. This guy will define Interscope. One, two, three into the boat. Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the dope. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip shit up. Give me the microphone first so I can bust like a bubble. Compton and Long Beach together, now you know you in trouble. Ain't nothing but a G-Bang, baby. Too low death, nigga, so we're crazy. Death Row is the label that pays, man. Unfatable, so please don't try to fake this. But uh, back to the lecture at hand. Dre Sonics were far superior to any rock record being made or any hip hop. It just sounded better than everything else on my speakers. Jimmy was unlike any other record exec that I ever met. He wasn't talking about how many records we were going to sell. It was a conversation about the art. I said, wow, these guys remind me of when I first saw the Rolling Stones. This is the same as Mick and Keith. They scare you, but the music brings you in. But now it's time for me to make my impression felt. So sit back, relax, and strap on your seatbelt. You've never been on a ride like this before. With a producer who can rap and control the maestro. At the same time with the dope rhyme that I kick. You know and I know I flow some old funky I shit. I said, I'll tell you what. If you guys don't move on me, and give me two to three weeks, I can clear up all these lawsuits. And Sugar and Dre looked at me and said, Okay, that sounds good to me. I don't know any other white executive would took on what Jimmy took on, which was one of the biggest headaches to come to the industry ever, probably. I remember sitting in the meeting, and the promotion guys are saying, we ain't gonna get radio to play that. And Jimmy's like, I want you to buy radio spots in the top markets, all of them. Get this hook played because the hook is undeniable. I'm the boss. Go do like it. This, this to you, why do you think Jimmy, Jimmy Iovine don't know? Uh, I mean, ultimately, I think he just sees, I mean, he said right there, right? Like, he sees in them, was it the Beatles or something? Like, he sees in those the Rolling, the Rolling Stones. He sees in them true talent, true ability. He sees in them the ability to actually, like, revolutionize the state that the music is at currently. So he, he knows, okay, well, the, the the state that the radio industry is in right now, they're not playing it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to finesse them. I'm going to go around them. I'm going to buy up those radio spots. So now they're mine. So now you can't reject me because I own them. And I'm going to play this on those spots that I just bought. And they're going to hear it. Everyone's going to hear it. And I think that's how. Okay. So first points, you think that he done that for profit? Um... Ultimately, yes, right? Because he's a new record producer, whatever his title is. He's just started a new label. He's just said before that when Nine Inch Nails gave them 
that record, I think it was called Broken or something, right? Like they were cash starved. So they needed money, they need it quick. Ultimately, Jimmy so far has been painted as this person who's like ambitious, conniving, you know, almost borderline sociopathic. He'll say anything to anyone to get anything he needs. He sees these two guys, they come in, they play the track. That's insane. I want that. That's talent. Ultimately, he sees dollar signs, but he knows that he has to get around the established radio order. So he's going to buy up the spots, play it on those spots, and then he's going to make the whole record industry ultimately bend to the will, his will. Yeah, that's that's even more true if you bring out the fact that like Indescope aren't in the best of position. It goes into that now. So it is very much about money um, and also in that kind of line of work, the, the, it's like an investment. He's also kind of doing it for ego. For sure. Definitely when he looked at Jay and then he said, oh, the scary and that. Hey, look, get on this. He said it reminds me of the Rolling Stones. And just like a minute or two earlier, he said he's looking to find people like the next Rolling Stones to take that to the next area. So you really see this plan coming into motion here. And again, it's the effects of all this that I want people to take into account and its effects. Yeah, ultimately, it's just fitting his, you know, agenda of finding, you know, weird, quote unquote, unconventional artists, right? Like, you know, the Primus and the Nine Inch Nails, very unconventional. No one else is really messing with them. He's just looking for anything that stands out, something that's new, that's exciting, that's scary, because that's the underside of it. No one wants to touch them. And then these two dudes walk in they've got the whole album there it is play it for them okay that's incredible mad talented insanely skilled uh, but here's the issue no one's going to play with it you've got lawsuits on your hands you're coming off this NWA thing where the FBI was after you like you, you come with a whole load of issues but you're insanely talented so here's what I'm going to do I'm going to take you on I'm going to get rid of these lawsuits then I'm going to buy up radio spots play this everywhere and he's basically just attempting to wipe the record clean and take them forward and we're, we're going to make money off this that's it this is why i've mentioned this subject in the past but yeah and does that make the kind of celebrity or the artist some kind of product to the boys who are in these industries i mean without going into it too much could you just touch upon the sort the celebrity and just answer whether the celebrity is a kind of product rather than a person yeah, sure. So if you think about like, you know, the economic base, it's really easy when you're dealing with something like, you know, factory workers that make a car, right? Let's say there's like a production line and it goes through five people and then at the end you have a finished car. It's really easy to see how those people are having their surplus value taken by the manufacturer of the car. They sell the car and then the workers get like, you know, whatever they make, which is always less than the value that they've produced. Now, for people like Dre, his tools instead of being you know on the assembly line he's in a studio so his tools are you know 808s synthesizers soundboards and everything and the music is the product that he's making at the end of the day and his surplus value is still being sold and exploited just in a very different way and with very different values right like Snoop Dogg and everything, they make millions instead of the, you know, thousands that people on assembly lines earn. But yes, they are ultimately still delivering a product to market that people like Jimmy Iovine, you know, management above him, are exploiting the surplus value of, you know, the the artists. So celebrities are essentially just people who have earned enough money to become culturally relevant while having their surplus value stolen. Because if you think of someone like Snoop Dogg, yeah, like he's, you know, culturally significant, huge, revolutionized, changed the game. 
insane celebrity, but he made way more money for all of those record labels than he did himself. Yeah, I mean, this is why I say that this documentary is a kind of ad anyway with human physical products involved. And this is again why technology is used against us and rather than for the for the better of us, we could just be learning on like a pure factual basis of a historical event. But I think that this is produced in a way to bring out these products, to bring out the product, to bring out, you know, all the other works from like everything else that the documentary touches on and sell them back to us in like a, a deal made with Netflix um, obviously to get that exposure up they're not just telling us the story where they're going just for the sake of it just for the sake of benefiting human knowledge they're telling us it with the interest of showing why Dr. J is incredible why Jimmy Iovine is incredible and why you should invest in them and all the products that they've made I mean obviously this is all parts and it's very interesting through classes you mentioned Dre working on the sound deck and boards that are there to make the music. Later on, you see him not even work on them, and that's when he transcended the class as well as a marketed icon. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, he definitely takes that on, right? Because there's beats by Dre which cost like. I remember seeing somewhere how much they cost to make, and it was like 30 quid or something, but they sell for hundreds. Like, honestly, anyone that gets into the the nature, the business industry, is ultimately going to have to succumb to the incentive structure of capitalism itself. So just because, you know, he comes from the streets, like, it doesn't make him immune to the allure of capitalism and the exploitation of surplus value. Like, those headphones, I'm sure, are made by, you know, people who earn cents an hour in some Chinese sweatshop or something. Yeah, those headphones, you see, the very inception of that idea um, you see all the the starting of that idea and then you see like the end product of that idea in the fourth episode it's basically just one big advert for for beaters but it has to give us something to be interested in and that is the historical context and opinions and insights from the people involved in that historical period, like the artists who spoke to Jimmy Iovine and all that, helping us put it together. Yeah, it's just mad. Fucking product placements everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ultimately it's ultimately just the reality of the of the, the fact that there is no such thing as like non ideological history, right? So, like, anytime you narrativize anything, that's definitionally ideological which makes history a weapon so even in, even when you narrativize anything you're you know leaving parts in leaving parts out bigging up certain parts downplaying other parts so even when watching this documentary and the focus is obviously on jimmy Iovine, so i'm sure that he had a lot of say in this he left things in he cut stuff out he got the final say on you know where the story goes and who it follows and the the, the light that it paints all of these people in God damn, just to finish up on, we talk about ideological um, impression for, from the documentary too, was you can, it's nowhere more clearly than when Jimmy Iovine himself tries to divulge whether he was being like a good person or a terrorist. I'm not going to spoil it, but, but the analogy he uses is so ideological, you just can't help but like see how he's purely just bourgeois to the core. I'm sure. It happened in this Los Angeles park. 
Snoop's bodyguard shot and killed 24-year-old Philip Waldemarium. Snoop didn't pull the trigger, but he, the bodyguard, and a third man were all charged with murder because prosecutors say they hunted down Waldemarium after an earlier argument. Snoop Doggy Dog, whose real name is Calvin Brodus, claims self-defense. This would be appropriately characterized as a gang-motivated type killing. I remember Shook calling and saying, you're about to hear something on the news. Just know that our guys are all right and it's all gonna be okay. Next thing I knew, cops everywhere surrounding the building. That was rough, you know, we'd, we'd never been involved in something like that. That caught me completely off guard. But by that time, gang banging had showed up, you know, and Shug would show up with these big dudes, red everywhere, and Snoop had his crew in blues, and it was just nuts. It was kind of exciting because the environment was kind of thuggish. There's bloods on this side, crips on this side, and I'm hearing all these different war stories. And I feel like it was something I needed because if I'm producing a record for a particular artist, it's like you, you have to get into the type of vibe that they're in and understand the type of environment that they're coming from creatively. And just, you know, you have to almost be that person. Sitting there. So Jay's talking about recognizing he's an outsider of this world of the dog life, but he has to place himself in it to a certain extent so that he can be a better artist and see things how they see and describe them how they would to obviously be a better artist to touch those kind of people. I can empathize with that to some level on a podcast where I'm representing the lump and I am worker, but I do recognize the importance and just getting to know them how they think and feel, show solidarity. If Dr. J and people and can do that for the sake of their own profit in the music industry, then of course we can do that for solidarity and to learn from other proletarians what they're going through, if anything, to motivate ourselves to to work together and the importance of everybody's problems and why they should be worked on immediately. Marilyn Manson? Yeah, he was pretty rough. Trent insisted that we sign him. He's a really smart guy that I thought was making really compelling music, you know, and I believed it. Were we both 100% aware that we were using mechanisms to shock people? Yeah, of course we did. And this is for the G's, and this is for the hustler. This is for the hustler, now back to the G's. So we were looking Showing at some houses for rent. Pushing on the floor. Just like the other gangster rap and all that, of that life. Manson, he's obviously targeted towards another different kind of group of people. It's basically just using any tactic ability, uh, possible to get eyeballs, right? Because eyeballs translate into record sales. If you can get some kind of personality like Ma Marilyn Manson to do crazy things, they're always on the news. Everyone's always looking at them. That drives record sales, which, is, you know, it, it all translates to money. Yeah, Manson's really self-aware and uh, interested in individual. Obviously, this was recorded before we all find out that he's like a fucking racist. But have you ever seen somebody's music tastes cause a kind of social stigma in your life? I mean, stigmas exist around certain types of music genres, right? Like, I mean, there was obviously the gangster rap thing. Um, 
and even Marilyn Manson, honestly, like the whole thing in the 80s about like, if he plays music backwards, then it's a demonic call to Satan or something. Yeah, I think it's crazy that without consciously talking about it, I am obviously now because I've recognised it. But I'm also talking about music taste coming hand in hand with fashion taste as well. Sure. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, of course. I mean, like when Marilyn Manson gets to the stage in, you know, the makeup and the dress that he does, that influences a culture. That was what I was saying earlier, right? About like, you know, a, a mode of culture that comes along with every artist. So you're either, okay. you're either trying to fit into a culture or you're completely revolutionizing it and changing it yourself, right? And Marilyn Manson, you know, people, people started dressing like him. They wanted to be like him. It's the same thing with any celebrity you get, right? Like people want to be them. They want to be like them. They want to wear what they're wearing and, you know, talk how they're talking and wear the makeup that they're wearing, you know? Yeah, it's somewhat <laughs> delusional that you're never going to be that individual. It's crazy. I just wanted to bring out to that whether you think that that goes as far as not just influencing music taste or what you wear, but does it actually influence behaviour and just how far that can go. Sure. I really want to dive into whether this music industry does affect us as individuals, as consumers, and how. Yeah, sure. To the point to work our way through this to speak to you so you can put it in real and educated terms and then I can also cut together some audio for this to to back up that idea to show people that not only has it been created by these people who are openly talking about how they done it and it was it had no interest in building their subculture with any consequence of how it can actually affect people's behaviours it was purely for economic returns so that's really why we do this so I think that it, it's going to be interesting and it's basically just the way that Mark said that like it's your social standing influences your consciousness right so if you're around that type of music all the time and you go to the shows and everything that means that your social group is people that do that and along with that comes certain types of behaviors and attitudes and opinions on things right like that's that's how it is Back at that time, I loved fast cars. I had a white Testarossa. I speed out on Wilshire Boulevard. I cop this behind me. I'll put it in gear and I take off. Somewhere between 100, 120 miles an hour, I see more lights behind me. So I decide I want to go a little faster. Now I'm in a high speed chase. I don't know what he was doing. He was ridiculous. I wanna fuck you like an animal. Get me closer to God Andre got into the high-speed chase in that Ferrari about a year into us dating. I suppose I was innocent and naive about all of the stuff that has to do with Dr. Dre. 
I loved that he was confident and yet humble. It's such a great combination. We were incredibly compatible. But my family and friends were leery because they only knew Andre through media. They didn't know the Andre that I knew. But I think a persona was connected to him that wasn't true. I need something a little bit more impressive. Shall not fear no man but God. Though I walk through the valley of death. Left me alone, I grew up amongst a dime breed Inside my mind, couldn't find a place to rest Until I got that thug like tatted on my chest Tell me, can you feel me? I'm not living in the past, you wanna last Be the first to blast, remember Cato No longer with the seat the seats Call on the sirens, seen them murdered in the streets Now rest in peace, is there heaven for a G? Remember me, so many homies in the cemetery Shed so many tears Five years before he was on death row, Tupac was on Interscope and did three albums. In the beginning, it was a social class thing that he was confronting. He really wanted to represent disillusioned youth. This world is such a gimme, gimme, gimme. You know, everybody's like, you taught that from school, everywhere, big business. You want to be successful? You want to be like Trump? Gimme, gimme, gimme. Push, 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 push. Step, step, step. Crush, crush, crush. I mean, can you imagine somebody having 32 million dollars? 32. 32 million dollars. And this person has nothing? And you can sleep? It was mentioned that he was trying to address like a class issue. And it, of course, was he mentioned how one person can have like 32 or 38 million dollars and this person can have nothing and couldn't believe all oh, the millionaires left. But he also mentioned people want to be like Donald Trump. And that was in 1982, I think, on the telly. Uh, like, how, how mad does American society, though, Ryan, that, like, <laughs> Trump's used in that way back then by Tupac? And he's the president of the United States today. Yeah, well, I mean, he was always like a cultural figure, right? Because he was like, he, he inherited 400 million. So he was a just a leisure dude anyway. Like, he never had to actually work or do anything. So he was sort of like a a celebrity even from way back then right so he just becomes i don't want to say a cultural icon i don't want to say president either yeah well i yeah for sure but i mean it fits like it makes sense like the systems of power that enable someone like that definitely will allow him to become president right there's no like shock it's not like wow how could a, a rich out of touch dude be president it's like no of course like it's not a surprise yeah, and Tupac, of course, was just somewhat revolutionary back then, and it's just it's just interesting that he mentioned Trump to think of like the epitome of evil at that time in his mind. Yeah, I mean, because even back then he would have dominated media, right? Like he had TV shows and everything even back then, and he had a thing where he owned buildings, and that's why he's he's in Home Alone too, because he had this he he had it written into every contract that if you if he lets you use one of his buildings for a film, you have to shoot a scene with him in it. Oh, what a balance! That's why he's in Home Alone too. <laughs> you, you just you know that, right? Like the scene where. 
like Macaulay Culkin walks down the street, walks down the hall, and he stops a dude and asks, like, where's the bathroom? And it happens to be Trump, and he asks him, like, where's the bathroom? And Trump just says, oh, down there on the left, and then he walks out, and that's, like, the whole scene. Because he had it written into contract that, like, if you use my building, you have to shoot a scene with me in it. It's just sad. I mean, it's just the reality of the situation. Like, if you have money, if you own property, you you can you know bend contracts like that to your will. It's like this is my property. Oh, you want to film? You want to film in my property? Guess what? I'm having it written in that you have to shoot a film with me uh, uh, in a scene. Yeah, and then he's marketing himself as a product in it, and then obviously all the fucking buildings and that that he represents. Yeah, for sure finding opportunity in life that he was confronting and what made him great is that he was highly emotional but all of a sudden things went strange Shakur is no stranger to violence in November 1994 he was shot during a robbery at a Manhattan recording studio $40,000 worth of jewelry was taken from him he also has a rap sheet as long as some of his songs this was his reaction after his latest conviction nothing the court can do can punish me more than I've been punished already in what way? by being shot five times twice in there I mean nothing just can tell me can, can make me not want to catch these kids were real. This stuff was really real. And we were right in the middle of it. When you take those extremes and you nurture them and not interfere with what they're doing, the potential is limitless. And that's what Interscope was about, empowering those artists. I'll tell you what we got from it. We got some anxiety, we got a lot of laughs, and we huddled in the um, foxhole. Controversial act on the road today, coming to a sold-out arena. There you. He is causing cultural fights all over the country. Marilyn Manson, he's evil. In every city, Manson's arrival stirs protests and angry headlines. I've always identified with the character of Lucifer in the Bible. We're here to worship Satan. Criminal charges can be a career ender, but not in the case of Snoop Doggy Dogg. Some accuse the rapper of making crime pay. Murder sale. That's why people do videos on sex and murder. From our point of view, everybody had the right to say what they were saying, as long as they weren't breaking the law. If anything, we were always trying to calm things down. It was just impossible. Some of y'all don't appreciate what we're talking about, but this is the only way we got to make money. And if you don't let me make my money on the street, I guarantee you, I will make my money on the street. The rap star Tupac Shakur is free on bond tonight after his arrest this weekend in Atlanta, charged with shooting two off-duty police officers. He has been criticized for anti-police lyrics. I don't got to be a role model. I don't got to hold your hand. Marilyn Manson.
Manson's latest album recently went triple platinum. On the next page, the words go, it's not about East or West. It's about niggas and bitches, power and money, riders and punks. Which side are you on? And there's the sound of a gun cocking and firing. job. I'm out of money. I'm out of uh, all my resources. You made me look like the bad guy in my own community, and I appreciate it. These niggas are still fucking talking. You niggas still breathing. Fucking roaches. So what we've essentially seen is the effects of these artists basically affect culture and affect people's thinking. You've seen it in the background of this film clip. Many fans all dressed, as you said, uh, like Marilyn Manson, dressed as, you know, the thugs that you see, you know, marketed. Uh, and then you see, don't know what that, I don't know what that kid was on about, where he was just, like, saying all mad. He was just repeating all, like, the N-word and um, on a stand. I don't know what that was. It looked like some official event. But you're seeing these effects draw it out. And more than that, you're also seeing Tupac's early revolutionary phase play out where he shoots two undercover, or no, what the undercover or not in uniform? Well, basically, he shoots them dead. They were undercover, yeah. <laughs> uh, because they were harassing somebody, I think. Yeah, they were. So, yeah, he goes to jail. Yeah. And then um, while all of this hype's going on, and, you know, another point that I wanted to mention was one of the CEOs of the music industry said that there was times where we lived in anxiety and we also, like, huddled together and had some good laughs. And I just pictured that meme in my mind where, like, everybody's got, like, champagne, all these, like, billionaires chuckling in the circle together. But, I mean, that's just to bring out the fact that at this time, these music tycoons were really killing it from both the Marlon Manson side and, you know, the gangster rap side and all that. And then Tupac goes to jail and then, you know, documentary plays on. New York Times Magazine section did a story on me. And from what I understand, this guy Jonathan Leo was at someone's house in the Hamptons and they were saying, who are the most disgusting purveyors of schmutt in the world? So this guy Jonathan Leo says, look what Time Warner's doing. They just bought 25% of this guy's record company for $100 million. So the next day in US News and World Report, he wrote a story saying, Time Warner buying 25% of Interscope is like buying 25% of a mustard gas factory. The leading so like, cultural producer, this article was called cultural producer to be called that wow yeah yeah i mean they are producing culture right like even though they are producing music like what ultimately comes with that is the the cultural significance of those different artists that they're signing right like if you want to sign 
Snoop Dogg and Dre and everything, you're going to bring that culture with them. You're not going to disconnect them from, you know, where they came from. Like, if you sign Snoop, you're also signing everything that comes with that, right? No doubt. <laughs> That's something we're doing, but it's not in the same way that that bourgeois newspaper would do where they analyze the cultural effects through a class lens. They had already talked about the cultural effects of this music, and have we done that as much? I don't know. That's why we're doing this. Sure. Mustard gas factory. So I'm like, oh man, here we go. There has never been a time in the history of the world that so much sex and violence masquerading as entertainment has been easily and readily available to so many people. Never. You do have a responsibility to assess the impact of your work and to understand the damage that comes from the incessant, repetitive, mindless violence and irresponsible conduct that permeates our media all the time. A line has been crossed, not just of taste, but of human dignity and decency. You don't have to degrade our women. To kill people, to disrespect each other, well, it's not all right. Those who pay them have a responsibility. To corporate executives who hide behind the lofty language of free speech should understand this. We will name their names and shame them as they deserve to be shamed. Time Warner. Time Warner. Time Warner's the biggest. Time Warner owns a company called Interscope. The death row Interscope Coop. Which columnist John Leo called the cultural equivalent of owning half the world's mustard gas factories. To me, this music is the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater. The fire starts. Meanwhile, simultaneously... The media and entertainment industries are buzzing over what may become the third mega media merger of the summer. The deal would create the biggest media company in the world but both sides say there are still major issues to be worked out. Because of the proposed merger with Turner, Time Warner needs tremendous amounts of regulatory approval and want to be looked at with a great deal of favor. Jerry Levin called me in his office in the height of the insanity. Jerry was a very decent man. He was the CEO of Time Warner. He said, Jimmy, my son teaches with Tupac's lyrics in Harlem. I get it. He said, I got a problem. Dole's got the cable bill and I need his help. And I gotta sacrifice something. So I said, that sounds reasonable, but that's his problem. All this means continuing headaches for new Time Warner Music Group chairman, Michael Fuchs. I was coming into chaos. This is probably why I was given the job. The board was sick of what was going on. So I was told it's time to clean house. Maybe uh, they thought I should be more respectful or something, you know? We meet with Michael Fuchs. He says, the next six months, I'm gonna evaluate each and every one of you. And he points to me as well and he says, I'm the Michael Jordan of management. So I look at Michael Fuchs and I said, but Michael, this is baseball. This guy went nuclear. Time Warner's music division has been in turmoil for months. Heads have been rolling as the new boss cleans house while the company remains under attack from foes of gangster rap music. Fuchs spent the summer ousting the rap label's defender, Doug Morris, from his chief executive post. Michael Fuchs just panicked. I fired Doug. I felt there was a loyalty to the music industry, but not necessarily a loyalty to the company. We were doing great. And suddenly, we're out the window going splat on the pavement. Not him, me first. I hated the fact that it was me first. And the music business is very tight. Tight like a pack of thieves, you know. You got some guys from Brooklyn in this war with all of these enormously powerful entities. 
and Time Warner's first instinct was to buy the whole thing and attempt to clean it up. Death Row Records, which was an absurdity. I get a phone call at midnight from Suge Knight, and he says to me, yo, who's the guy we hate at Time Warner? I said, Michael Fuchs. He goes, yeah, that's him. They want me to meet him and Melba Moore and Dion Warwick at Dion's house tomorrow morning. I said, where? Who? Melba Moore and Dion Warwick and Michael Fuchs? Yeah. And they're getting the mayor of Compton to come. I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing? I was told to police the lyrics a little more. Michael Fuchs wants to talk to me about a deal. Dion Warwick said, fly out here. Suge's like my nephew. He lives in the neighborhood. He'll come over. You'll talk about things. I'm a partner of his. We own the label as much as he does. For him to fly out and meet with one of our major labels without calling us is unacceptable in any form of business. So I called Suge. I said, Suge, meet me tomorrow morning at Jerry's Deli at 8 o'clock. So I go to Jerry's Deli, I meet Suge and David Kenner, Suge's lawyer, and I know that if Suge walks into that meeting, Michael Pugh, he would do anything to either put Interscope out of business or get this thing done with these lyrics. I just really want to interject in the podcast. He um, gutted that I didn't mention this with Ryan Jordan, the recording, but it really breaks my heart when I hear how you, how widespread the usage of the N-word is. I know that's not for me to comment on its usage and that's a touchy subject, but we're talking about Jimmy Ivey in here who is doing everything that he can in order to keep the proliferation of extreme language used in music. That's what he's doing now. There's somebody literally bought the company so that they can go in, clear house, and they're trying to get Suge Knight now to sign a contract, basically, to comment saying, yeah, just make sure you're not going to use extreme language. And Jimmy Iovine's really doing everything that he can here to ensure that this you know this use of language talking about illicit crimes stealing murder rape violence however yeah i mean we all know that that's what this gangster rap was so you know i'm gonna insert a clip here that i i was doing research on this last night when i was thinking about how gutted i am that i never got to comment on this use of, of language with ryan so i'm just gonna insert this clip here just so i can really have some kind of of, uh, I don't know, moral gratification with myself that I did at least address this issue. More than anything, though, I have become deeply acquainted with my own points of encounter, my personal history around this word. Because when the N-word comes to school, or really anywhere, it brings with it all of the complicated history of U.S. racism, the nation's history, and my own, right here, right now, there's no avoiding it. So again, even when a, a president or a flipping congressman in U.S. politics even makes the point that Jimmy Iovine thinks that he can say and do whatever he likes under the guise of free speech, that is to put out these explicit records that, you know, really influence the population and as you can see in music taste, in you know, fashion taste, in behaviours of personas and even, you know, affecting language 
uh, propagates slang and it propagates, you know, this the n-word usage i don't think anybody can deny that and you know it's interesting to see that you know just how bourgeois democracy is democracy for the bourgeois because i mean he just made a monopoly rather than got censored for the free speech so sugar and i were going to stay in that restaurant with david kenner and just wait until michael fuchs left dion kept trying to call sugar and sugar was incredible so every time warwick would call and say hi baby when are you getting here he would say I'm down the street I hang up and he'd say i'll take a chicken breast cheerios and another hour pass Hey, where are you? I'm almost there. I'm at the light. By three o'clock. I realized Jimmy was hostile. She says, Michael said, if you guys want more money, it's cool. He goes, yeah, I'm on my way. And he never goes. I don't even think it was just money. I think as a matter of principle, by taking their money, he would have lost control. By five o'clock, Fuchs had to leave. Who had time for that? So she calls up, you embarrass me. What are you doing? I look foolish. And Shook looks at the phone and goes, hey, you're the psychic. How come you didn't know I wasn't coming? And hangs up. <laughs> Don't worry about this. <laughs> so you're saying that death row does not present any negative images to black youth? No, I think it's a positive image. I think death row is real positive to black youth. I mean, it's letting, it's letting people know you can be yourself and still be a child of God and still be successful. That was Suge Knight, CEO of Death Row Records, speaking about whether Death Row produces music that's positive or negative to people. And he said it's, um, it's extremely positive, basically, and something about it following the way of God. I don't know what's absurd. Source Award was coming up. The whole city was excited. This was our Grammys, Oscars. If you don't make your name today, you don't exist. At the time, Death Row was the biggest money maker in rap, hands down. Death Row, we had our section right here. 15 Bloods, 15 Cribs, associates and family members, 50 people total. And then right here you had Queens, Brooklyn on the side, Bronx behind us, New Jersey, Staten Island, every part of New York that you could imagine. For me, it was the first time the East Coast is really embracing what we're doing on the West Coast. You know, New Yorkers wasn't going platinum anymore because the generation before us fizzling out. But Bad Boy and Puffy were coming up. They were about to be the next death row or bigger because Puff's a smart guy. His ear is incredible. Nah, nah, no phones allowed. I need you to pay attention to me. And he fine-tuned the business side more than anybody. They need to see how meticulous I take this flyness, you know what I'm saying? I'm from the East Coast. New York, New York. New York and this motherfucker, Harlem, New York, we up in this bitch. Straight up Brooklyn in the house, representing. The entire night, the room was electrified with tension. Everybody knew there was gonna be some shit between the boroughs coming in and making name. The furthest thing from my mind was any beef with death row. And then, Suge Knight walks on stage and says the most outrageous shit ever just completely disrespects Puff. One other thing I'd like to say, any artist out there want to be an artist and want 
stay a star. I don't want to have to worry about the executive producer trying to be all in the videos, all on the record, dancing. Come to death row. can see in Puffy's face. Puff's the one being interviewed at the moment. I'm guessing that the producers of this documentary have just shown him that clip <laughs> where he's basically being called out by Shug Knight for being in all Biggie's music videos and that. I was like, oh shit, he done fucked up. For the spirit, we supporting him and then clapping because he's with us. Yay! Then a nigga started to think, well, what the fuck did this nigga just say? I thought it was gangster that he would be in New York and say that so for a few seconds, I was loving it. Because I was like, if we came here to rumble, let's turn this thing into a rumble. That's the worst shit to do is to disrespect a nigga in his home turf. He's talking about me in the videos. I'm like, fuck him. In my opinion, it made all the New York niggas start coming together. They loved us, but when that moment happened, they hated the shit out of us just that quick, like that. It felt dangerous. It felt like this shit is dangerous right here. It was just a room full of pit bulls and gorillas. It just was niggas that was wild. It was animals, you know what I'm saying? Hyenas. We had a bunch of niggas with us that was fresh out the pen, niggas with a lot of shit to prove, you know, niggas that just loved getting active. And there's thousands of these niggas with guns and... Death Row had things on them, Bad Boy had things on them. I'm pretty sure Wu-Tang was prepared. That night I saw the headlines, next day, Stupid Source Awards gathers up stupid rappers and they shot each other. Rap is done, a bloodbath. Winner is, uh-oh, we're gonna have some trouble here. The D.R.E. Then when Snoop got on stage, bandanaed up, braids, it looked like he came for war. Wait, wait, wait. The East Coast don't love Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. The East Coast ain't got no love for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Death Row. Y'all don't love us. Y'all don't love us. So I'm like, is he gonna say fuck New York? Well, let it be known then. We don't give a fuck. We know y'all East Coast. We know where the fuck we at. East Coast in the motherfucking house. You match aggression with aggression. But you match aggression with aggression with love, with asking. Snoop had the power right there to make it go either way. And nigga said, you know what? For the sake of what that nigga just said, we gonna let y'all walk up out of here. But nigga, y'all better hurry up and get the fuck out of here. So when all this stuff is going on at Warner, this sort of war begins between Bad Boy and Death Row. And that's when we all realize, whoa, we're not in Kansas anymore. So as Jimmy said, we're not in Kansas anymore. What he means by this is, whoa, this whole, this whole life and these things that have been happening in, in all products that I'm selling from these poor communities, these are actually in, in my face now and they're actually in my life. So uh, <laughs> that that's what he means by that, in my opinion. Another point is just this whole East Coast, West Coast kind of business. Like, I'm sure that's great 
for building hype between these industries and whatnot. But I, I think that the artists at the time were did see it as like a personal thing and not a commercial plan. Besides Shug Knight, I think Shug Knight, because you've heard of how he deals with like managers and CEOs and music industries in the past. Um he is more switched on when it comes to marketing and that I think so Shug going up on stage was not just uh, like a personal front, but I think it was also like commercial one, whereas that that might not have been as relevant with other artists at the time. But um, yeah, that's just an interesting thing to to bring out of this so called beef. Yeah, I mean those are real, right? Like they are real and authentic, but they just get used and adapted by you know capitalism to generate profits. But like the beef between Eastern Coast is real, like the same between you know. Bad boy and uh, and death row, you know. Yeah. The Source Awards changed everything. Now you realize where your power was. There was no limits to where a CEO or a mogul can wind up. So now it becomes more serious at the top. A lot of my stuff was around what was Dre gonna focus on? Is Dre gonna work? What's he working on? Because Dre wasn't any faster then than he is now. But what Shook told me, he and Tupac wanted to get together. What I thought of is Dre and Pac. Tupac's in prison. Tupac, since your period of incarceration in Clinton Correctional Facility, have you taken the time to reflect on your gangster thug image? <laughs> Um, I don't see it as me having this gangster thug image. Um, thug life would be more uh, accurate, but it's not an image, it's just a way of life, it's a mentality. I don't feel like what I did was so evil, I just feel like what, the way I was living and my mentality was a part of my progression to be a man. Pac was a different beast. A lot of rappers like to claim they're Pac because they thugs. That's not Pac. No doubt. You know, this is a guy who saw a black person being harassed by police officers and shot him. You're not Pac until you're fighting with killers. But that was a moment in time where Tupac had fear in him. Here's a young man accused of things he didn't do and put in jail, and he didn't know who to trust anymore. And somehow or another, he found that in Suge. Time Warner wouldn't allow us to bail out Tupac. So what happened was we advanced Death Row the money and Death Row bailed out Tupac. I imagine that Pac himself believed Suge bailed him out. But the truth is, we and Time Warner put up the money. I mean, look, I was definitely part of bailing out Tupac. play California Love for the first time. A song with Tupac, Dre, and Roger Troutman. Holy fuck. So they start manufacturing, start shipping. Did you say anything? Yeah, you just made my job easy. Because I know what a lot of shit's gonna happen. 
So what I've just saw is basically wasn't that the term where Tupac got put away for killing her two two busies and then the music industry moguls have just simply paid his bail and got him out. Yep. Like obviously I'm all for my gene revolutionary Tupac and his freedom. Who else could kill two people and then just just get pulled out if not, you know, somebody who's of such valuable interest to the bourgeoisie and just how much does that just show you what kind of fucking world we live in? It's insane. Yeah, I mean, it's just the collaboration between, like, the law as a product of the superstructure and, um, you know, if you have money, you can get bailed out. I mean, the, the, the law isn't, like, independent from politics, right? Like, if you know people, if you, can, if you have money, you can get out, right? Like, it's not an ironclad thing. Not just the money, but the power and the, it's what these music moguls seem to have because he even sat back and said, like, yeah, I was um, involved in bailing Tupac House. <laughs> and, like, what kind of fucking power is that? God. Yeah, mm-hmm. I made up that he got out and he made sure. California love like. Out of bail, fresh out of jail, California dreaming. Soon as I step on the scene, I'm hearing hoochie screaming. Fiending for money and alcohol, the life of a West Side player with Calisa and a strong ball. When Tupac came into the studio, he just stayed in the booth, wrote the song, laid the song, put up another track. That was amazing. He'll just write about five or six songs before he comes out. But give me that ball beat from Drake. Let me serenade the streets of LA. From Oakland to Sacktown, the Bay Area and back down. Cali is where they put their back down. Pop was like, fuck that. Oh, right now, California. Doing a video, nigga, you probably ain't never even seen Mad Max. Well, put the suit on, nigga, let's go. Dre is great at taking Tupac's built up frustration and making that shit sound fucking awesome. And I said, Dre, you nailed it. You heard Dre take just another step in production. Next year, Death Row gonna start printing our own money. We making so much. We need- but as success builds, as visibility builds, as fame builds, people react differently. But Tupac, I did not see it coming. When Pac and Sugar got together, it created a very volatile situation. They were going to do what they were going to do, and we couldn't control that. I just want to send a shout out to Bad Boy Records. It came about something that none of us really understood. It became a street war. We're coming to overthrow the government y'all got right now, which is Bad Boy and Nas and all that bullshit, and we will bring a new government here that will feed every person in New York. I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave Death Row and everything that was accumulated. I was going, Dre, this label's worth a lot of money. You should get paid for it. You own half the label. He goes, no, I didn't want anything following me. I'm done. I'm done. So I called Dre. I said, don't break up the Beatles. You keep the band together, you know? And he said, no, I can't do it. There's nothing I can do about it. Everything just changed. It became a lot more violent, you know? Engineers getting beat down, just random people getting beat down and shot at in the studio, in the mic booth. Kind of shit I was just against. You saw some of this? I'm not saying that on camera. It was always incidents that are secret that we will never speak on. Power, control, celebrity. It'll fuck anybody. Anybody. And it happened at death row. There's a story nobody knows about because they brought this person into my office of all places. And the beating that they commenced to put on that dude, and it was blood.
blood everywhere and the dude is pulling on my pants leg. You know, I just wanted to get out. No, nigga, you can't leave. Even if you do leave, nigga, you gonna leave in a box. That was death row. That's death row. They said, you know, gangsters spend their whole life trying to become legitimate. You guys are earning tens of millions of dollars legitimately. Why get involved with any of this nonsense? I mean, look, I, at one moment, I said to my ex-wife, I said, am I defending free speech or am I funding Hamas? I was so confused. It was so intense. And I was on a new page I'd never seen in my life before every day. You know, on the news, every time we watch on TV, something would come on. This thing happened, you know, this guy got killed or shot or, you know, and there was always a reason for it. And I don't know if I just, I don't know what I did. I was on a mission. I was on a very, very intense mission. What do you feel when you hear a record like Tupac's? What do you think of that? Do you think that that was Jimmy Iovine's confession of guilt for um, a culture that he may have propagated through the music industry? It comes with the artists you sign, right? It's like I said earlier, like if you sign those kinds of artists, then they're going to bring that kind of lifestyle with them, right? Like- mm, but, but so you don't think that, as Ice Cubes put it in one of his tunes, that gangster rap made people do these things? I mean, I don't really know if there's like a solid connection. I mean, it makes it more popular, it makes it more known, which means it reaches more people. But it's not like they invented it, right? Like it was always there. But the question as to whether it amplifies it, I mean, yeah, probably. But would it like take people who aren't involved in it and bring them into it? Like, I have no idea. I think that, like, in, as I say, Lumpung communities, because there's just nothing going on, there's nothing you can do, uh, really, though, other than, like, listen to, like, music, and when you listen to, like, rap music and that, and it's talking about, like, you know, the whole, obviously, abbreviation of, like, a neighbourhood and interchangeable with, like, a council estate, and, like, what, what it talks about is, like, like smoking weed and that like I can tell you like for a fact like I only smoked weed and I like I only started when I was like 18 because of like how much I'd heard Naz talking about like smoking like a Buddha sax and that uh, with his mind in another world thinking how can he exist through the fact and I was like yeah well I like like philosophy kind of shit and I was like yeah so if weed makes you like think like all differently and philosophical I'm all for it and it, and it like kind of did you know what I mean so then I like got it I think that it has had a big influence on people. I mean, definitely, like, obviously, like myself in some ways. But if you think um, it doesn't, that's why, you know, I'd love to have you on and, and hear your thoughts and hopefully contribute to a discussion that other people can be involved in and have helped me out on this. Right, but don't you feel like that creates uh, tension between East and West? He's talking about killing people. I had sex with your wife, and not in those words. I give you all the love I want in return, sweet darling. Thank God for the Concord. I take off at 10.30, I'm in New York at 9.30. So Ted Allen and Skip Rittenham go over, have the meeting at 9.30. And, you know, I'm banned. 
right? We'll have the meeting, but he can't come. They thought that they could manage Ted Fields and the lawyer. Ted's staying at the Four Seasons. I'm at the St. Regis with David Cohen. They call us up at 10.30. Ted says, I got great news. One is proposed to buy our share of the company for $150 million. And I'm ecstatic. I hang up the phone and I run there. We go upstairs and I say, what did you say? Alan says, shut up. We all, they gave us $150 million. We get rid of death row. Nobody likes that music anyway. Jimmy says, no way. We're not doing it. Alan says, you idiot. You're going to get all this money. $150 million. We can't do this. We're out. Are you nuts? Fuck that. Are you crazy? I've never been so sure. Are you fucking crazy? No, no, no. We didn't do it. Jimmy, against the advice of his attorneys, had the courage to say, no, we're going to ride with death row. This is what we do. So then Time Warner decides that they have got to sell their share to us. So everything is good. We're happy. Meanwhile, every time I called Geffen, he would say, you can't be this lucky to get your company back. I did say that. I said, Jimmy, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Because Doug now, by the way, is no longer at Warner's. He's at MCA. And him, Geffen, and Edgar Brofman took our company in. We bought it again. We bought Interscope. This was a defining moment, and people lost, which was the Warner side, and people won, which was the Interscope and MCA side. The success was remarkable. At one point, Interscope is responsible for the top four albums in Billboard. He predicted it literally six years on the dot from when Jimmy came up to me. Don't Speak was number one around the world, and I was a huge star. Don't speak, don't and I've made a lot of movies, and I was head of a studio. I've been to many, many premieres, but I've never worn a bulletproof vest going down the red carpet. That's Jimmy. I say, you're making music. This is, wow, this, how did it get to this? I remember riding in the car to Suge once, and Jimmy had invested hundreds of hours into the human being to really help him. I said, Jimmy has given so much of himself to you. Why is it going to the place it's going? And Shook said, that's what I know. Hey, yo, I got some new shit for y'all tonight. It was like, forget how y'all knew rap before. This is a new day. Oh, yes. Let's go all the way. See, it's this nigga named Nas, and he kicking with these niggas named Mob Deep, and they kicking with some niggas named Bad Boy. Fear is a good thing, because it can keep you in check. But I say fuck them all. You cross lines that you just knew somebody's gonna get hurt. So I'm about to take this nigga beat and whoop his ass with his own motherfucking beat. Tupac was two different people living in the same body. This was the greatest poets of a generation. Totally gracious, totally engaged, but you saw the fuel of what was driving it. It was almost manic. What made him great is that he was highly emotional, but he's just lashing out. I can only interpret it as that he was trying to figure out who the enemy was. 
We never got into disliking any of the artists, but we had a problem with Shug really disrupting our, um, you know, quality of life. Westside was the world crowd, busting off freeze, really fuck. All y'all niggas in Swahili. It was just very sad. And... I just want to say on Tupac and, and the comment of Tupac being like two people in the same body and it was almost like he was trying to find out who his enemy was. And Tupac being one of the greatest poets of a generation, which is no understatement. He was extremely creative um, and articulate and just a general poet with rap. He was a revolutionary, at least in some respects. And I think that the conflictions arise when he's getting more and more mainstream, um, as well as having this view on on a reference of, say, somebody having like $38 million while this person has none. And then he has to become commercialized and then earn that kind of money and then kind of justify it to himself and he's got Chuck breathing down his neck like telling him like you know gangster life dog life and that so I think that he returns to that because this is of course an image portrayed of this very same subculture which I think he himself feeds into and buys into at the same time um, I don't know what an interesting thought have you got anything in yeah, well, I mean, the divides are real, right? But he's he's amplifying it for sure, or just even speaking on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure to some degree they sell the image just because it gets eyeballs and that drives record sales. Showtime! I remember them going to the fights in Vegas, and I always thought that was dangerous, you know? And um, they went to the fight that night. It's on video. Everyone is seeing it. And um, next thing you know, all you niggas die. Rap singer Tupac Shakur was killed in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas. No one has been arrested in the killing. Shakur was 25 years old. There was no reason for Tupac to die, you know? And um, especially like that. A life is lost. The company's going down the hill. Everybody's in disarray. And Dre on the sideline watching, and everybody's saying, I see why you left, Dre. Los Angeles Superior Court judge ordered Knight into court for violating his probation and then raised troubling questions about why Knight hadn't been locked up before now. Suge went to prison for a long time, and that was the end. I feel like the gangster rap era is over, you know. Put out negative energy, it's going to come back to you, period. Live by the gun, die by the gun. It's time for something else, you know. Just any quick final thoughts and now what did you think before you were going to go into that and what did you come away with? 
I mean, yeah, I didn't really know what it was going to be about, but I was aware of the stories tangentially. I wasn't so much aware of the sort of role that Jimmy Iovine played executively within those mm-hmm. companies. Like, I knew everything about, like, Snoop and Dre, and then you had, you know, Cube and Ruthless and Interscope, and um, I was aware of the stories. Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't understand the amount of power that, you know, sort of Iovine wielded within the political sphere to get things done, you know, to sort of make lawsuits disappear and to get people out of jail and things. But it's not at all surprising because when you, when you're, you know, when you own a position like that, you can just make phone calls and essentially make anything happen. So it's not exactly surprising. Yeah, it was something that you brought out perfectly well was the fact that behind these massive organizations are actual people, individuals and you described that and Jimmy Iovine eventually turned into one of those individuals behind massive industries that of course have enormous powers so just bringing people out of jail and that so yeah, I think if anything people can go away with the facts that shows the systemic cultural monopoly yeah, sure. but it also shows the individual side of it as well and it's an interesting dialectic. Yeah I mean ultimately there are only people on the planet right so even when you're dealing with corporations there they're not actually faceless entities. You are dealing with people. Like, even if you think of something as large as Apple or Microsoft, there are still people there, right? Like, there's still the Bill Gates and the Tim Cook or the Steve Jobs of those corporations, right? Like, there's always a person at the top with a name and address. And, you know? mm, and just to finish off there, that episode of The Defiant Ones ended, is Dre said he thinks the gangster rap music industry is dead. I mean, I, I think, like, if anything exists today, it's worse than, like, gangster rap at that time, but I hope people go away with the fact that it, this exposes in some ways. Like, gangster rap isn't, like, a way of life. It's a product that's being sold, just like they sold the whole goth scene and they sell, like, other scenes to, like, different people. It's And it's the same people behind it. You can go on to the next episode of that and then see how they sold beats to... You know different subcultures and you see like the challenges of of tackling for example the athletic people in society and then you've got like this what they call urban people in society and then how they basically market products and music is a product and similar tactics are used and i just hope that people found this somewhat interesting enlightening kind of new i don't think i've seen anything of like a music documentary analysis before us. So before the sign off, let me just say if you like what we do here at Revolutionary Lumpen Radio, you thought this was the least bit interesting, leave a comment, share, like, subscribe, all that business. Uh, just give us some feedback and let me know what we can improve, what we can keep the same. Very much developing here, trying all kinds of different methods, as you can tell from previous episodes, all the structures for each individual episode has been you know somewhat uh, unique to the previous other one so yeah i mean we're tackling an array of subjects you know experimenting here so that's shibby and ryan signing off solidarity workers and lumping of the world unite Full clips and heavy metal when the smoke settles. 
I'm just looking for a big yellow. It's six inch stilettos, Dr. Dre. Percolating, keep them waiting. Why you sitting there hating? Your bitch is hyperventilating, hoping that we penetrating. You get nating, cause I've never been to Satan. For hardcore, I'm in a straight gang, bang affiliate. MC Winner had you wildin' off a zone in a whole half a gallon. It's a gallon. 911 emergency. And you can tell him, it's my son, he's hurting me. And he's a felon. On patrol for robbery. Ain't no cop in the fleet. Ain't no stopping the jeep. I'm in the six, you got to hop in the three. Company Monopoly, you handle shit sloppily. I drop a key properly. They call me the Don Dada. Pop a collar, drop a dollar. If you hear me, you can holler. Even Rockwaller. Follow the Impala. Wanna talk about this concrete nigga? I'm a scholar. The incredible, heterosexual. Incredible, beggar hole, let it go. Dick ain't edible, nigga ain't federal. I plan shit while you handpick, motherfuckers giving up transcripts. I started this gangster shit, and this the motherfucker thinks I get hella. I started this gangster shit, and this the motherfucker thinks I get hella. I started this gangster shit, and this the motherfucker thinks I get hella. I started this gangster shit, and this the motherfucker thinks I get. Villain blows up your spot. Take your notebook, your bitch, and your clock. This motherfucker thought the coochie had a padlock. You slapped her ass, that's alarming. Cause she want my worm like Carmen. We chin check niggas, them dead check niggas. Run trains, don't go diggers. Beware these four niggas. Scaring motherfuckers like Stephen King flicks. Making niggas glitter room like a dyke being dick. Making second to none shit, nigga like quick. So when I bomb first, nigga, who you rolling with? Fuck that ice on your wrist. Fuck your fine ass bitch. Cause you can lose it in a tussle, nigga. Watch me hustle. Watch niggas kiss my ass without flexing a Muscle. Bitches all in the back, their knees waiting to buckle. Same time, same channel, don't change the dial. Niggas for life, fucking your wife, these niggas fine. Said he 
that beef. Ask me if I had my piece. Sure do, two twenty twos in my shoes. Holler if you need me, love. I'm in the house. Roman Strong, see what the honeys is about. My wet poppin' hoe, hoppin' ain't no stoppin'. Big Papa, I'm a bad boy. Niggas wanna front, who got your back? Niggas wanna flex, who got?